Hello, welcome to the Sala podcast. Today we are talking to our feature artist for 2021, Roy Ananda. Today we are meeting on Ghana country and we'd like to acknowledge Ghana elders past, present and emerging. And we'd like to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. I suppose the first thing is um, to introduce Roy and maybe you can tell us a little bit uh, about your practice as a as an introduction. Sure. Um, yeah, my name's Roy Nanda. I'm a visual artist based in Adelaide and I've been practicing for approximately the last 20 years and very happy to be the Sala feature artist this year. Um, yeah, so my practice is fairly diverse. It sort of encompasses sculpture and installation, drawing, occasionally dabble in text and video and, and even performance and things like that and spans a lot of different territory but for this current show and recent work is often fixated on my kind of uh, own pop culture fandom and and um, where that yeah how that sort of spills over into my life as an artist. Excellent. And as the feature artist this year, you are on the Sala posters, you're on the Sala program, you're on the Sala snapshot. You're everywhere. <laughs> Can you talk us through the works that people might be seeing on the cover? So oh, sure. the Heart Jumper work and then also Ether Drift. The, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was really nice to have, to have two covers actually because it could show a you know, even though two is not a breadth, it still kind of shows different dimensions of the practice. So, yeah, the, there's two images, one of which is on the Sala, the, the full program, an untitled work called The Heart Garment as a sort of shorthand, which is a, a one-to-one scale red skivvy that whereby a kind of a, a oversized cartoon representation of a heart is kind of exploding out of the chest. And this was, uh, yeah, it's sort of an older work from about 2006 that comes from a suite of works where I was sort of taking tropes of, from the world of cartoons, things that are peculiar to that cartoon world and, and trying to go, well, what would that look like as a physical object? Um, so, the yeah, that kind of Bugs Bunny sees the attractive female rabbit and his heart jumps out of his chest to, and thinking, well, what would that look like and kind of what would it do to your skivvy uh, <laughs> if that was a real medical condition? Um, yeah, and the other work, Ether Drift, is a much more kind of austere, formal kind of work, um, which is another dimension of my practice, I suppose. So it's, uh, yeah, it consists of two kind of aluminium uh, trestle A-frame ladders that are being kind of overtaken or, or intersected with this floating field of hexagonal grid forms. Um, yeah, which I guess has a sort of slightly science fiction aesthetic to it. Uh, that's, so that's on the cover of the Sala snapshot and also on the cover of the monograph, which I think is there because it's, you know, it's a graphically, it's quite a strong image, but I just thought as well, that idea of a, you know, a mundane object, like a ladder being overtaken by this more fanciful form that seems to belong to a world of science fiction, that intersection of the day to day and the, the fantastical, I thought was a, a nice, um, uh, emblematic of my practice in bigger sense. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that we respond to so well in your work, that sort of almost daydream like quality to it of seeing mm. something that is potentially ordinary and then sort of extrapolating out from that and what could it be and 
and how could it interact with other things in the world? And so with that in mind, thinking about the untitled heart garment, you might be able to solve a little quandary that has been coming out in the silent office. So would the heart then retract back into the skivvy or would the heart always remain outside of the skivvy and you would have to just carry it around under your arm for the rest of your life? Well, this is the thing, isn't it? I mean, the, the choice of skivvy in the first place, I mean, I would never wear a skivvy, but really, I don't, can't <laughs> imagine myself doing so. But uh, I, it seemed to be, if you're sort of transposing that Bugs Bunny trope into a human being, it seemed to be maybe that character would be like a hopeless romantic that is always falling in love. And so his, the skivvy would get stretched out and maybe not retract. <laughs> like it would just be sort of flopping around all over the place. Uh, and I don't know why I thought a romantic poet would wear a red skivvy, but that in my head that made sense at the time so i think that yeah to solve the 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 quandary yes it's it's it doesn't have the elasticity it once did and it does trail around excellent excellent i think someone owes me five bucks Mm. um now we sort of touched i suppose on some of the works that have already been made but you've got quite a lot of new work in sala this year Mm -hmm. can you talk us through i suppose supreme library at the adelaide central gallery first Mm -hmm. but also the works that you have in the art gallery of south australia as well Sure. I might start with the Art Gallery of South Australia works because um, they're sort of part of a, a continuum of existing work that you know some listeners might be familiar with. So that's uh, part of an ongoing series of of what I'm calling my annotations, which, whereby I take a an existing image and it might be you know a, a film still from a feature film, a day to day object, an infographic, uh, or an existing artwork, as is the case with the AGSA project, and transpose it into a kind of blue outline diagram that's numbered and then the numbering corresponds to uh, giving this sort of fictional provenance to the component parts that are all sourced from various usually fictional sources or pop culture sources so for that AGSA project you know AGSA's got such a great collection and I was spoiled for choice about things I could annotate but I'm annotating one work that's up currently which is Oliver Eliasson's Dark Matter Collective which is the work with sort of 200 plus spheres on a beautiful kind of steel armature um, and a work that hasn't been out for a while, but but one that loomed large in my childhood imagination, which is Peter Booth's Painting 1982, which is a kind of nightmarish vision of sort of hell, I suppose, with sort of people eating one another and demons and carrion birds and things like that. Um, yeah, so I've, I've annotated those two works and based on this sort of fiction that those works are made up of, well, the, the Eliasson work is made up of 200 different orbs and spheres and crystal balls from things like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and that the the uh, Peter Booth work is made up of, you know, various notable cannibals from horror films or, or you know, piles of viscera that could be attributed to different death metal album covers and things <laughs> like that. Um, so, yeah, those annotation works are, are, are kind of ongoing and, um, uh, yeah, I guess kind of, a, you know, meant to be humorous and, and meant to be a sort of gentle self-parody about my own tendency to see everything in kind of pop culture terms which i think is you know true of a lot of people of, of my generation or and not even necessarily a generational thing but but with my interests or you know with the people that engage very heavily with with make-believe and fandom and things like that i suppose the nature of those works is that often like say with the elisa thing i'm trying to come up with you know 217 different spheres so i do start with things that i'm a fan of but inevitably i have to look further afield to to other areas of pop culture that maybe aren't as close to my heart so while I really enjoy those annotation works, the, part of them feels a little bit disingenuous because I'm making lots of references of things that aren't necessarily 
close to my heart. So that's a roundabout way of saying the work for <laughs> um, the central show, Supreme Library. I've taken my own collection of pop culture paraphernalia as the starting point and attempted to catalogue it and wrestle with it in terms of, yeah, these sort of long lists and these isometric diagram, collage diagram kind of things that, that try to map patterns through it. So, yeah, I've catalogued about 4,300 individual items um, and we're currently sitting in my, my sort of den of fandom with, it's, with all my records <laughs> and all my D&D books and, and comic books and things like that in it. Um, yeah, so the work is, yeah, kind of attempting to grapple with all that data. And again, it's, it, while it is about my collection specifically, hopefully that's not the primary thing that people need to know to get into it or find a way into it. Um, I think it's also hopefully a little bit of a, again, maybe a gentle parody of the human tendency to, to catalogue and archive and, and put systems on things that are maybe quite unwieldy and, and not particularly systematic. Yeah, and are those sorts of systems something you've always gravitated towards? Because it seems like something that has sort of come out again and again in your practice, even in some of the more, I suppose, formal works about, mm, you know, mm grouping things together or, li or like things or mm. imposing rules upon yourself. Um, yeah. How does that work? Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's a good point. I, I really have always enjoyed the interplay of systems or parameters and improvisation or spontaneity. So yeah, it, as you say, even in more formal works, works that don't have these overt narrative or, or pop culture touchstones, um, there will always be some yeah, some set of rules that I've devised for myself or that emerge through the material play that kind of govern it. Yeah, and I've always enjoyed art forms that have very identifiable conventions but then kind of muck around with them or musical forms that have, you know, I don't know, the way a jazz improvisation can have a lot of structure underneath it but still be quite uh, spontaneous and things like that. Um, yeah, and I've, I, I quite enjoy artists that use sort of procedural generation and very systematic things you know i love solowitz variations on incomplete cubes and things like that um so yeah that they're close to my heart this might be a bit of a left of field question mm. but in imposing so many rules and systems upon yourself do you aim to work within those rules really stringently or do you aim to break those rules um that you've created for yourself um I try and be rigorous about sticking to the things that I've set for myself. Like I'm a big advocate of the productive relationship of constraint and creativity, both, you know, it's a big part of what I do in my teaching for any, well, for any art school lecturer, I think, you know, we're always devising briefs and things that are paradoxically limiting students options with a view to being a catalyst for their inventiveness and things like that. So I try and walk the walk and talk the talk in my work. Um, for example, with this particular thing of the collection, um, you know, a big part of it has been scanning or photographing covers of albums and things like that and then, you know, manipulating them on Photoshop into this isometric projection for the collage and stuff like that. And it was interesting going through and, you know, particular albums or films or things that, loom really large in my fandom but I don't have a physical hard copy of because it's something that I've got as a download or you know that I engage with through a streaming service or something like that so I sort of found myself going out and buying these records and DVDs that I'll probably never play the record because I've got the mp3 but it's like, oh I've got to have MF Doom's Mad Villain in there because otherwise you know <laughs> what will people think of me if it's not in there um you know so uh 
sometimes those rules, <laughs> you know, I adhere to them almost to a slightly daft extent. Maybe. <laughs> um, that's really interesting that so much of, of the cataloguing almost reveals yourself, not only your interests, but as you say, like, what would people think of me if I didn't have this <laughs> seminal album? Yeah. Do you feel like maybe even looking at Axe's collection that our collections reflect ourselves? Uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, yeah, I, I guess to any extent, any artwork is sort of a self-portrait. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, this is like the bibliography to my life in a way. <laughs> um, I mean, Ags's collection is so fantastic and it, it kind of, I think we forget how much is there because, you know, the proportion that's actually out on display is so small. But it blows my mind that, that we've got full sets of, you know, all the Goya prints and Piranese's prison series and Jura and all these sort of incredible things that, you know, and I guess we could kind of make an appointment, go and look at them and, you know, if they're, even if they're not on display. Anyway, that's by the by. Don't but... tempt me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, in terms of that, what that collection says about us as a state, you know, it's another way that we punch above our weight in the visual arts, I think. Mm. Fantastic. And obviously, you know, we've been talking about your fandoms and I suppose anyone who knows your practice really well would be able to pinpoint some things that are that they know that you're interested in, like Star Wars, um, D&D, The Simpsons, um, you know, particular, uh, you know, rap or even language. Um, how does fan art differ from contemporary art? Hmm. Well, <laughs> how long have you got? Yeah, so I actually did my master's degree pretty much around that topic. Um, there's no short answer. I guess one of the big points of view is, I guess there's this thing that we call fan art that might exist in certain platforms, like websites like DeviantArt and things like that, which I think of as being quite distinct from the work that I might make that could be you know, maybe called contemporary art that uses fandom as a subject matter or often as a method or methodology, maybe. Um, I suppose one of the key, there's key points of difference, I guess, like audience intention and things like that. Um, I guess a lot of fan art is purely celebratory of the subject. You know, it's it's reaffirming and reinforcing people's love of a particular franchise. You know, within that, there are, that's not the blanket rule you know there are there is fan fiction and fan films that are you know challenging and subversive and and you know the idea of slash fiction for instance where you know someone might write some star trek fiction in which captain kirk and mr spock are romantically involved or something like that so that you know they they change narratives up to be more inclusive or, or represent different kinds of experience um but yeah, I suppose frequently fan art is purely celebratory, whereas I guess what I'm trying to do is certainly it is celebratory, but I suppose there's also a, maybe critical is too strong a word, but there's a a sense of, you know, when I make an artwork about Dungeons and Dragons and about, you know, me mocking up a death notice for the newspaper for my character that's died, you know, that's that's meant to be funny. It's meant to be humorous. It's meant to be, you know, a sincere thing about how invested we get in the fiction. But it's also a self-deprecating thing that it is sort of preposterous for a 40-year-old man to pretend to be an elf for eight hours on the weekend. Like, it's daft, <laughs> but it's sort of wonderful. So it's yeah. it's worth both celebrating and gently poking fun at, I suppose. And I suppose, yeah, a lot of fan art is intended for a fairly closed loop of like-minded fans. And I would hope that a lot of the work I do around fandom 
has layers for people that share in those fandoms, but for someone that's not the least bit interested in Star Wars or Dungeons and Dragons, they can still engage with just the sense of play and the sense of a human being being enthusiastic about something. I think that's compelling, even if you don't share the same object of enthusiasm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's one of the things that does draw people to your works is just the the sheer pleasure and the sheer joy that you can feel from someone engaging with something that they love. And, mm. you know, in, in many ways, perhaps the thing that someone loves is art. And by engaging with your work, they're engaging with their passion mm. by proxy. Mm. Um, because obviously you're the feature artist because you've received the South Australian Living Artist publication, um, it would be really remiss of me not to ask you about the publication and mm. how it evolved and happened and sort of, I suppose, you know, those links to the work as well. Sure, yeah. Um, I suppose an important precedent for this particular monograph is actually Chris Orch's monograph from a few years ago that, that I was lucky enough to work on. Um, and I think Chris broke the mould a little bit by having multiple authors and particularly including Peter Goldsworthy, the, the novelist and poet, and Peter wrote really beautiful poetic responses to Chris's work. And so, yeah, I kind of, we, when we put our, submission together so that the four people involved in myself Andrew Purvis um, who's a, a writer and curator and an artist who's written kind of the, the the big more conventionally academic piece of writing for the book um, Bernadette Clavins who's an emerging artist and writer and an arts worker who's written a number of short form pieces about particular strands of my practice and then also Sean Williams who's a very accomplished and highly regarded fiction author, particularly writing like writing a lot of speculative fiction, fantasy and science fiction work and having written for very long-standing franchises like Star Wars and Doctor Who as well as his own work. So he's written um, some really fantastic short-form pieces that, yeah, are variously using constrained writing strategies like acrostics and things like that or writing using um, conventions like you know, an example of a script that's like an example of play that you might see in a D&D rule book or, um, yeah, literary mashups combining M.R. James and Clive Barker and branching path fiction and all these kind of things. So using these literary forms that that sort of might appear in, in the various fandoms that I engage with. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a little bit of an eccentric book in that way. Like it's got a lot of text in it that's not kind of conventional arts writing. Um, it's got really extensive footnotes where we've all chipped into the footnotes and almost having little kind of conversations and little, um, almost little disagreements or, or you know, <laughs> like one-upmanship of trying to outdo each other with obscurity of our references and things like that. So it's quite <laughs> playful and um Obviously, I've got a lot of work that, that reproduces well in photography, but but works that might have a video component or a sound component. Uh, we've tried to do little things with typography and layout that where those things become kind of an analogue of those works that, that um, don't necessarily reproduce well in a static image. And... Uh, yeah, the funny little things like, you know, tables for procedurally generating and the basis of a Ronanda artwork you can do by rolling dice. And again, things that, you know, they sound sort of gimmicky and I guess they are, but I, I feel like they've earned a place there because they are really part of those worlds of fandom that the work is sort of surveying as well. So I'm really grateful that Wakefield were so amenable to some of our little offbeat decisions and things like that. And, uh, the design work that Liz Nicholson did on it is phenomenal. You know, what we handed her was this very dense, unwieldy manuscript and she's just laid it out so beautifully and, and made it really clean and, and easy to read and engage with. That's fantastic. And it's nice that it's not, 
it's it doesn't seem so academic. It seems like it's something that is approachable and playful mm. and fun to engage with. Um, obviously, this isn't a retrospective of your work. It, it does cover some of the breadth of it, but mm. it's really focused on, you know, what you're going to do next. Mm -hmm. um, I suppose, how does your early work respond to the concerns of your contemporary practice? And are they still there? Are you still exploring them? Or have you moved in a completely different direction? Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose there's sort of this adage that, like, I remember when I was an art student, Chris Orchard saying to me, or he said, you know, he always says, says this to all his classes, you only ever make one work. Uh, and I remember at the time being kind of sort of appalled by that and thinking, no, that can't be, you know, 19-year-old me going, no way, man, I've got heaps of ideas. Uh, but the more I go on, the more I think it's true. And, I, you know, it, not literally that you've only got kind of one trick up your sleeve, but that there are long-standing concerns that, that manifest themselves kind of no matter what. And I think earlier on in my career, I used to think that I did have these two distinct streams that maybe could be ascribed to the way we talked about those two cover images, you know, that there was this sort of strand of work that was very sort of materially based and process driven and quite formalist. And then there was work that kind of was more humorous or used cultural references and visual puns and things like that. But the more I go on, the more I think those things are all kind of one and the same. So, you know, certainly in the book, there's really early work from when I was just out of art school that that cleaves to much a much more kind of formal thing. But then within a few years of that, I'm doing things like the heart garment, these sort of odes to Warner Brothers cartoons or slapstick comedy and, and things like that. So and that's where those lines started to blur that, you know, the physicality of Buster Keaton, you know, having a building fall on him, but he manages to be standing in the right spot where the window frame falls around him safely or something like that. You know, that, that raucous over the top physicality was always in those, those more sort of formalist works as well. So, um, yeah, I might've lost track of your original question. But I think it was about contrasting the back work from back then. And yeah. Now. Yeah. I suppose like do the, the concerns that you were, you know, interested in, in your early work respond to the concerns of your, contemporary practice. So I think you've answered that really well. Um, one thing that I'd like to bring up is that I think in the book, there's some of your childhood drawings. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to speak to that? Because obviously that almost extends your art career. Even further. <laughs> yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a, quite a, a nice full page reproduction of an image, a drawing of Yoda I did when I was about three, which would have been, yeah, like I guess pretty much hot on the heels of seeing Empire Strikes Back in the cinema, um, yeah, and I think there's some. I think there's like a little portrait of Bert and Ernie from Sesame Street in there as well. Uh, well, in fact, I was kind of I think that that appeared where I was trying to make that distinction between um, fan art, or th th there's a sort of a term in fan art that was coined about ten years ago, um, affirmational fandom and transformational fandom. So affirmational fandom is is you know when you perhaps write fan fiction that really reinforces the conventions of that particular franchise or if you're into cosplay you might make a you know an iron man costume or something that's very faithful uh to the to the ones that appear in the, the marvel films but transformational fandom might be one whereby yeah you maybe you you rewrite a narrative to have queer protagonists or you uh reimagine you know you make a I went to a convention years ago and someone had made a really beautiful Iron Man, like a steampunk Iron Man for gears and cogs and things like that. So I, that would be an example of, of transformational fandom. So my early fan art, you know, <laughs> I, without blowing my own horn, it's pretty good likeness for a three-year-old of Yoda. <laughs> the Bert and Ernie drawings from the similar era, not too bad either. So, you know, that was me being an affirmational fan. Uh, 
but now now I'm more of a transformational fan maybe. <laughs> but yeah, but blessed to my mum for keeping all those drawings and documenting them and writing exactly how Otto was and things like that. <laughs> yeah, obviously annotation runs in the family. That's right. Well, she yeah, she was a, a teacher librarian for a lot of her adult life. So that's, you know, oh. I've still got a lot of books of hers that have got all her marginalia and things like that. In oh. them. <laughs> Fantastic. Did yeah. she help with the bibliography? Uh, no, not as such, <laughs> but uh, yeah. Only through genetics, maybe. (laughs) I don't know if you would agree, but to me there seems to be a lot of um, contradictions in your work. So um, you might have very ephemeral sculptures that don't use ephemeral materials or, um, you know, have a work that seems kind of flippant like the heart garment but you know is really considered and in both its make and the sort of ideas behind it um how do you think you balance these contradictions in your practice and and what is their contribution to the success of your work Hmm. I suppose with a lot of work that involves humor or involves sort of a visual pun or an I get it moment or something like that I'm always very conscious that you know, we sort of talk about one-liners in art and we sometimes talk about it like it's a dirty word. And certainly there are one-liners that are not very sustaining, but there are one-liners that that stay with you and keep making you think. Um, and I think that, you know, I've certainly made a lot of one-liner works that are pretty forgettable or, you know, once you get the joke, you kind of can move on and, and not stay with it. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose the having that tension between, yeah, something being flippant but also a bit, earnest or a bit melancholy or something like that or you know something that's sort of a a quite a has a higher visual impact or a quick read but then you know it does have this care or attention to how it's been made I don't know I suppose in the same way a compelling story has a narrative tension in it you know an artwork that has some sort of tension between elements that is maybe part of what makes it sustaining or hmm did you have a CP? Did you have a particular thing when you talk about an ephemeral work that's not ephemeral material? Or what did you say? An ephemeral work that's got yeah, long lasting materials. Did you have a particular work in mind? Yeah, I was thinking of your, um, well, a few of them actually. One of your works that you did that I saw when I was a student way back when, where you wrote your name in paint all over your studio wall in different colours hundreds of times, knowing that you would have to paint over it or um, the more formalist works where all the wood was painted different colours and they would sort of come together in different assemblages but then be removed from the space and you'd have to unscrew the bits and pieces to, mm-hmm. to take them apart and then in the next show they would come together in a different formation. Mm-hmm. So they would never sort of stay the same but they would mm-hmm. always be made of materials that potentially could have lasted much longer than their short lifespan. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I think... Something I've always enjoyed is is the like the logistical problems of sculpture and how that then feeds into the the making process and becomes a driver for the work as much as any kind of outside mm. idea. So all those works that yeah that that reuse materials I always enjoyed how the materials bore traces of those previous states and carried that into the next work and things like that. Yeah, and that kind of I don't know that sort of that that sense of a lot of the, my big structures and things like that I think in a sense are really just a, you know an extension of that cubby building impulse you know that kind of makeshift make do you know quickly map out a space or or, or 
take over a space and make it yours if even for a short amount of time you know it's it's not that different to putting a, a gingham tablecloth over a card table and it becoming a fort mm. So I was looking through the Sala archives the other day and I found one of your keynote speeches from... 2004, maybe? I was going to say, yeah, yeah, I'm not good enough to remember the exact date. But I was reading through it in preparation for this interview and one of the wonderful things that you talked about is the South Australian arts community and what sustains you in the arts. Can you talk a little bit about what sustains you now? In your um, arts practice? I haven't gone back and looked at that speech, but I would hazard a guess that it's probably much the same things. Um, what sustains me? I don't know. I think it's. I think we've got a really lovely collegiate community in... in well, I can only really speak for Adelaide. I'm, I, one can tend to be too capital city centric, but I guess it is my experience. But um, I guess curiosity, like seeing what you're going to do next. <laughs> That's sort of a rather insular way of looking at it. But but no, look, I think I've had a very, I've been very lucky with a lot of the opportunities that have come my way and, and obviously tried to make the most of them and things like that. You know, teaching is a really important part of my practice. It's, you know, it's the bread and butter, but it's also incredibly rewarding. And I don't know, just that sense of having, yeah, having to kind of talk the talk and walk the walk. It's a good sort of reality check for, in an industry or in a, in a field of creative endeavor that can be very inward looking and and um yeah kind of breaks that closed loop of me just going, well what else can i do with star wars um <laughs> yeah. uh, i suppose talking about that sort of closed mm. loop and working on your own and you know for many artists they they very well may work in isolation and, and not collaborate with others how is the process of collaborating um, on the book, I know you mentioned that, you know, you'd worked with multiple people um, and obviously it was a very playful process, but you, can you dig in a little bit more to what that process actually was? Yeah. So I guess I think when we proposed, when we put in the application to Art to Say, I should say the Department of Premier and Cabinet, we, I think there was a good sense of, of who would be doing what and kind of what the roles would be you know, but uh, yeah, a lot of that developed organically through the, the course of doing it. Um, we'd met very regularly and, and shared a lot of drafts and, and kicked around ideas and, um, you know, uh, or Sean in particular wrote a lot of pieces, you know, a little, a lot of propositional kind of things that, that didn't make it into the book for various reasons. Um, you know, so there was kind of an editorial process that happened between us all there. Yeah, no, it sort of, yeah, it all sort of grew very organically and, Particularly the the in Andrew's long essay is um, can kind of be read in two ways. You, you know, in some respects, it is the most conventional piece of writing. It, it talks about my work, you know, in in broad thematic things, and and you know, it's beautifully written. It's poetic, but it also stands as a kind of an academic piece of arts writing. Um, but and you can kind of read that as a standalone piece on its own but then if you read it in conjunction with the footnotes which as I said are kind of quite extensive you get into this whole conversation that's happening between the four of us and there's this sort of color-coded um, footnotes <laughs> and, and little conversations taking place and little texts within texts and and uh, micro fictions and things like that in there and I think that's where you most get a sense of what the process was like it is, is this quite conversational thing that's that's going on in this, yeah, within the trappings, you know, we think of referencing and footnotes as a rather dry sort of trappings of academic writing, but we've tried to be quite playful with it in that sense. Mm. 
Was it interesting working? I mean, Andrew Purvis is also the amazing curator at mm. Adelaide Central Gallery. Um, was it interesting working with him as a curator on on the one hand, but then also as a writer and academic on the other? And was there, I suppose, a relationship to the book and the work that was produced for Supreme Library? Mm, absolutely. So I should say the title Supreme Library as well. It was was procedurally generated. It comes from a website called fantasynamegenerator.com that I use a lot in my gaming life. And I was just like, oh, what's it, what would they, what fictional library names would it sort of spit out? And, and you know, press generate. And in the first batch of 10 that came out, Supreme Library was in there. I should say that I think of that as being more the Supreme in that sense. It's, it's more to do with Supreme Pizza than it is to do with <laughs> ideas of supremacy or being the best or anything like that. Um, uh, Just a little bit of everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Did you try and pick anything off? Or <laughs> no, no, no onion, but extra anchovies. Um, <laughs> uh, no pineapple either. Thanks. Um, <laughs> I'll device if we lost. Half yeah, our yeah that's it. Well, you know, <laughs> I just got to run that flag up the flagpole. I think. Um, <laughs> but no. So the, 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 in, again, in putting forward the application, you know, I didn't quite know what the show would be. Um, other than it would be sort of uh, another entry in my kind of big ambitious monuments to fandom that that started with Slow Crawl to Infinity and then uh, continued with Thin Walls Between Dimensions, which was the work for the Adelaide Biennial that was the ode to D&D. Um, but it, it, I felt strongly that the show and the book should have more in common than just being launched at the same time. So that, that sense that the the strategies and the the processes that went into making that book or go into make, making any book, but particularly with some of the offbeat decisions we made about the format and the, the use of the book form, that they would sort of, those strategies of, you know, archiving, cataloging, pattern making within, within a body of material would sort of feed into the show as well. So that sense that both, yeah, the show and the book have come out of the same methodological approach we could say or something like that um was was quite important so all those meetings around the book were, were in a sense kind of laying groundwork or almost like research for the show as well and vice versa probably well, fantastic and a little wookie told me that there's quite a few easter eggs within the book yeah there are there's little uh little kind of acrostics and and wordplay and and um Quotates, a lot of lot of quotations and things that are that are attributed, but a lot that aren't and that are there as little yeah yeah Easter eggs is a good word for it I think. I suppose we're wrapping up now, but um, any artist who's been fortunate enough to be in the gallery and you know watching people experience their work. I'm sure would have some funny anecdotes. Um, mm. Do you have a favourite moment of watching someone experience your work or, you know, a favourite moment of of any of your works? Sure. Not that you have to pick favourites. No, but... no. Um, I've got a couple, uh, if I may. Um, mm. One of my absolute favourite encounters or uh, watching someone engage with my work was at um, a show called Caxa Contemporary 2015, which was across multiple venues. It was a group show. It was sort of a survey of, of South Australian artists that um, was put together by the Contemporary Arts Centre of South Australia, which no longer exists. But um, I had a kinetic work in that, which was a, um, a pair of dueling rapiers that were on a mobile-like structure, kind of Alexander Calder-esque structure uh, with a, a motor 
and the the thing would spin and the, the 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 two swords would sort of have this infinite duel and sort of clang together and i remember on opening night sam mcmahon and a friend of his were basically maneuvering themselves around the work and sort of following the swords and having this as if they were having a duel you know a la um you know inergo montoya and the man in black and sort of trading verbal sort of repartee uh, i thought that was absolutely fantastic that's exactly the response i wanted or the thing i wanted that work to trigger in people so it was lovely to see someone with the the confidence and that that sort of extrovert personality to 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 do that in a crowded opening i thought it was fantastic um Another really fond memory is at the launch of Slow Crawl to Infinity at the Sam Stagg Museum in 2014, which is my, yeah, my monument to fandom, specifically Star Wars, and, and that work recreates the scrolling text from the first Star Wars film in this sort of plywood structure. And I was really lucky to have uh, representatives of the 501st Legion, which is like the premier global fan organisation of Star Wars fans and uh, the Adelaide chapter of that, who make these most fantastic you know, screen-worthy costumes of, of key characters. Um, so I had, yeah, Darth Vader there and Boba Fett and some stormtroopers and some Imperial Red Guards, uh, you know, in costume at the opening. And at a certain point, they sort of came up to me and, and were quizzing me about the work. And they were like, oh, I noticed you've used the text from A New Hope, but what's your favourite Star Wars film? I was like, oh, it's obviously Empire Strikes Back. And they're like, oh, okay, that's all right. You know, <laughs> and they gave me this little, this little medallion. I don't know what it's called, but I know it's very rare for anyone outside of the organisation to get one. I don't know, Sean Williams has one too for his contributions to the Star Wars universe. So I felt very honoured to, to get that thing and to, to have that endorsement from, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a dilettante with Star Wars fandom, but these guys are the real deal, you know, so that yeah. was a great honour. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Um, do you mind if I give you one of my favourite Please. to your work? Please, yeah. <laughs> um, a, a long time ago when I was, well, not hopefully not that long, when I was in uni, um, you had uh, a series of books where you'd made imagined covers for them that were, um, you know, sort of various memoirs and, I forget the titles, but uh, I was there with an ex and he was picking me up from uni and he was like, oh, my God, do you know how famous your lecturer <laughs> is? He's got like 20 books written about him. Look, they're all out there. That's incredible. Uh, and I just did not have the heart to tell him that you had made up all those covers. Oh, that's very sweet. So, uh, maybe I'll send him a copy of this book. <laughs> Well, we had a similar experience to that at home because I've just got the books on a shelf at home and Julia, my wife, had her book club friends around one day and uh, who are sort of a lot older than her, but they, and they uh, saw this shelf of books and they were looking through it and they are like, oh, I didn't realise Roy was so famous. And they picked one up and it's got this very clearly photoshopped picture of me sitting on a couch with Melvin Bragg. <laughs> you know, Melvin Bragg's quite young in it. And they're like, he knows Melvin Bragg. I was like, excuse me, how freaking old do you think I am? Like, this photo was clearly taken in the 70s. But no, it's, I'm glad that they had that sense of verisimilitude that they could suck people in. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you so much for you. both submitting to this interview and um, for being the feature artist for 2021. Obviously, we I think we've touched on all the different places people can see your work, but That's um, right. is there anything else you'd like to mention anywhere else people can get to know your work and what you do? Sure. Um, yeah. So the, the two exhibitions are Supreme Library at Adelaide Central Gallery and uh, further annotations at the Art Gallery of South Australia. My website is royanander.com. Uh, I am on Instagram at, at Roy.Ananda, I think, although I tend to just post, you know, 
fan stuff there. Not, <laughs> not as much art stuff, but um, yeah, my website and the two exhibitions are probably the best places to catch me. Awesome. All right. Give us a good Simpson sign-off. Ooh. Um... Fuck. <laughs> Simpson sign-off. The hardest question mm. in the entire interview. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I suppose uh, I suppose in in keeping with the um the odes to Warner Brothers, I suppose that's all folks would oh. fit the bill. Mm-hmm.